So, I want you to imagine that you're out in the wilderness on your own. No communications, no electricity, no supermarkets, no restaurants, no hotels. As night comes, darkness falls, deep darkness. It gets cold. You're hungry. How do you make a fire? How do you cut up any food you might find? How do you survive? Enter the multi-tool. <laughs> the Leatherman signal pictured here is actually designed for camping. So it has a fire starter, which I think is number 17 or 18 there. A knife, a saw, and even a blade sharpener. So you can even sharpen the, keep it sharp. Multi-tools are very useful. And look, here's mine. It's not a signal, but it is a leather man. So I've been using this for years. In fact, I used it when I arrived here. The MX-5's um, um, sun visor was falling out, so I screwed it up in with my multi-tool. Bringing such a tool with you can mean the difference between life and death. Not in your MX-5, but out in the wilderness. So, not to be too dramatic, but in the wilderness... It's a big difference. Now, imagine you're in the wilderness of modern culture. Sure, there's so much that is good in Australian society, but think about it getting dark. Not physically dark, but spiritually dark. You're in a place where people are thinking only of themselves. Perhaps a toxic workplace. They're becoming increasingly common. How do you respond to the, to the abuse dished out? How do you relate to people who are inherently tr untrustworthy? How do you stand up for what's right when no one actually wants that? Or perhaps you're struggling with the suburban rat race. How do you decide how much to spend on your house? How do you decide what car to buy? Not one of those. Or do you need a boat or a caravan? Should your kids be going to a private school, which costs money? Of course, public schools cost money too. How do you make friends with neighbours who are so busy just maintaining their own lifestyle? Enter the multi-tool for all of life. It'll get there. There we go. Today I'm going to talk briefly about how we can use the Bible in the wilderness of the world. It turns out that it's actually much better than a multi-tool because they're always a compromise. They're never as good a knife as an actual knife. They're never as good a hammer as an actual hammer. They're never as good a pliers as actual pliers, but they're better than none of those. The Bible is even useful for explaining its own usefulness. How meta is that? Let's look at what the Apostle Paul tells his mentee, Timothy, in his second letter to him. We're reading the whole chapter, by the way, and just a warning, this chapter starts out very bleakly. It's worth noticing that Paul's critique of, uh, of people is directed at, his critique is really directed at attitudes, not at individuals. In fact, if we pay attention, we'll see that the people that Paul calls out, he doesn't mention any names of current people, 
but the people that he points towards are actually people in the church. So let's read. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. They are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are forever following new teachings, but they are never able to understand the truth. These teachers oppose the truth just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. But they won't get away with this for long. Someday, everyone will recognise what fools they are, just as with Janus and Jambres. But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, my, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things you've been taught. You know they're true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realise what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Just like Timothy, we find ourselves in the last days and boy, does Paul's description sound familiar. We all struggle with concerns Paul raises and the direction of our society makes this struggle more intense almost every day. Paul says people love only themselves and their money. Tick. They're boastful and proud. Tick. They scoff at God. Tick. They're disobedient to their parents. Yeah, tick. They're ungrateful. Absolutely, tick. Good grief, how prescient could the Bible be? 
Well, Dwight L. Moody said, the Bible is the only news book in the world. The newspaper tells us what has taken place, but this book tells us what will take place. Isn't that true? Let's keep going. These people will consider nothing sacred. Tick. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. This is an interesting one, considering how obsessed modern culture, including the church, is with love. The problem is we've redefined love to such an extent that we're no longer talking about love. Most of the time, we're just talking about either selfish lusts or a mild feeling of affection, as in, you know, I love this product. You can see this by how unforgiving we are, cancelling people at the drop of a hat. And not just cancelling online either. We, we, we actually cancel people in personal relationships as well. We're so loving that we just can't stand it when someone does something to disappoint or disgust us. So, yes, another big tick. Continuing, they will slander others. Tick, isn't that the purpose of social media? Just kidding, just kidding. You can, you can do other things with social media. They will have no self-control. Oh, this is getting depressing. Tick, they'll be cruel and hate what is good. They'll betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. Yes, 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 and yes. <sighs> Let's just wrap this up. It's getting me down. Ah, this last bit, they'll act religious, but they'll reject the power that God could, that, the power that could make them godly. This is perhaps the defining feature of our culture over the last decade or so. The way that it has become religious in its convictions. Superstition, believing something because others do, rather than because you have evidence that it's true, has become the standard way of understanding things. We saw this demonstrated to very ugly effect during COVID-19, and it's equally ugly in the so-called inclusivism that is actually more about exclusion than anything else. But we see it every day, in every area. Prejudice and bigotry thrive on superstition. And so we get reverse racism, we get bigotry against people of faith, and we get all the traditional prejudice and bigotry thrown in for good measure. It's ironic that all the failures of religion, at its worst, are now part and parcel of secular Australian culture. And as a church, we're too open to this culture. So that's the diagnosis, both for Timothy and for us. Self-centeredness has become an accepted way of life, both in the culture and in the church. It's ugly and it's destructive, but it pretends, it pretends to be holy and good. What do we do about it? What's the prescription? Paul presents two proposals and they're both important. The first proposal is endurance. Paul reflects on his own suffering. He reminds Timothy that wicked people are inevitable, that they will suffer, but they will suffer the consequences of their own wickedness. We can endure. 
That's true for us too, you know. I know that the Western church understands this intellectually, but I'm not sure that we understand it emotionally. Suffering is our lot as Christians. In fact, you know how project managers have a list of measurable things by which to measure the success of their project? People know that. And teachers have measurables. Everyone has measurables now, right? How you measure the success of your work, the KPIs. Well, the church should have a KPI of persecution. Are we being persecuted? Are we meeting our persecution KPIs? If we're not being persecuted, we're probably not being the church. That doesn't mean we seek out persecution. It just means we need to press into being the church, recognising that persecution is a natural and appropriate part of that. Of course, it'll still hurt. We'll still mourn and lament. All the sin and suffering of this world. But we won't lose faith. Persecution and suffering should never be a cause for losing faith, but rather a confirmation of faith in action. The second proposal is actually what this sermon is about. You've had to suffer through suffering to get here, but we've got here. So welcome to the sermon proper. The second way to respond to a fallen world, and probably the more important way, certainly the more difficult and rich way, is to immerse yourself in Scripture. So let's work through how Paul approaches that. There are so many practical tips that I could give you, but guess what? That's what we've been doing in our Tuesday night Bible study since the start of Renew. And that's really the best forum to practice this. Um, I'll have a couple of tips at the end, though. So for now, let's listen to Paul. He says, But you must remain faithful to the things you've been taught. You know they are true, for you know how you can trust those who taught you. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. So notice how Paul leans into Timothy's upbringing. Christianity, at this point, when Paul wrote this letter, is barely decades old, and yet Paul is already able to point to Timothy's orthodox upbringing in the faith. You see, Christianity is an inherently conservative faith, not politically, but religiously. It conserves the the truth, the objective reality. Why is it like that? Because we actually look to an objective reality that doesn't change. The Bible doesn't get updated. We don't have version 2022 of the Bible. It's not like Windows or Wikipedia or the DSM, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which can completely recategorize a psychological condition from edition to edition as if mental health were different from decade to decade. 
The Bible is actually a reflection of an unchanging God whose promises stand for eternity. Just as Wikipedia and the DSM and Windows are a reflection of a culture that melts like an ice cream in a Townsville summer day. Some of you are familiar with that sort of thing. (laughs) Additionally, it's important to notice how Bible study is a communal activity. This is one of our Bible studies way back. Paul calls Timothy's attention to his teachers, people that Timothy could trust. We too need to study the Bible with people we can trust. God's word is such a a vast thing, not only in the number of words it contains, but, but in its depth and its sophistication. Only a truly arrogant person would think that they could mine those depths by themselves. I was that person when I was young, but I've moved on. That's why Bible studies are one of those two core activities of Renew, along with, of course, these Sunday gatherings. And finally, the Bible teaches wisdom about our salvation. Rather than puffing us up with ever-changing knowledge, the word wisdom that Paul uses here doesn't just mean knowledge. It means a sophisticated degree of ability or skill. So the Bible teaches us great skill in pursuing our calling to be disciples, saved by grace, through faith. This wisdom, this skill, is what we use in the world. When someone abuses you at work, you don't have time to whip out the Bible and do a quick study on interpersonal relationships, right? I don't, anyway. But if you have the book of Daniel or Job or Samuel or the Gospels built into your mind, if you've poured over them and you understand them, they've become a part of who you are, a part of how you see the world, then you'll know how to respond. Paul spells this out in his famous final sentences of this chapter. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now, too often we use these verses as a weapon to defend our reliance on the Bible, but What these verses really attack is our pride, our own selfishness, our own independence. God's word makes us realise what's wrong in our lives, says Paul. In our lives, not in other people's lives. It teaches us to do what is right. It doesn't teach the world to do what's right. It teaches God's people to do what's right. God uses the Bible to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. God doesn't use it to browbeat those who rebel against him and neither should we. It just doesn't work, especially in Australia. 
Now, I don't have much time for practical tips, so I'll simply point you to a great resource that Renew is already paying for. Guess what it is? Logos Bible Software. Logos 10 has just come out, and the big improvements are improved speed, which is great because Logos was pretty slow before, and much more user-friendly searching. So the search tool is very sophisticated, but it was very hard to use. Now it's a lot easier, and it, it's more like Google, actually, which is a good thing in terms of user interface. But it doesn't know about you. It doesn't know about you like Google, which is a good thing. But because... <laughs> yeah, you've got to qualify when you talk about Google being good. But because Logos is... Uh, Bible software, it is complex because the Bible's complex, right? So that's why I've put this screen here. Start with these tutorials. You will need to start with tutorials. As we've recently experienced, it's hard to even get started to even install it, let alone um, use it. But it's worth persisting. If you're new to the, if you're new to your faith, just reading the Bible like this will be sufficient. But once you've read the Bible several times, you sort of hit a limit to what you can get out of that method of study. So you need, you need something more. You need to start using better tools. That's when something like Logos becomes very useful because it, it comes with a lot of extra tools that help you get that depth. So let's close with some final thoughts. I was doing my chronological read-through, which is a first... It's a new chronological read-through for me, so it mixes things in weird ways, mixes psalms in with kings and chronicles and stuff. And I came across Psalm 116, and it, were, it starts in such a beautiful way. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my prayer for mercy. Because he bends down to listen. I will pray as long as I have breath. Isn't it amazing that the God who made everything, who's in complete control of everything, who, who knows everything, even the future, is a God who listens to us. He doesn't need to. He already knows all our thoughts. But he humbly listens when we speak. And of course our hearts yearn to be listened to. And God shows us the greatest honour and respect when he listens to us. But he doesn't just listen to us. He also speaks to us. Have you ever read the Bible and come across words that speak directly into some struggle that you're right in the middle of? I know I have. God listens to us and he answers through his word. Hebrews says that the word is living and active. It's not dead and passive like a textbook or a novel. And God's word comes directly from the wisest, most loving person that you could ever have. So we can trust it implicitly. So each morning as we start out on another day, whatever that day holds, let's make sure that we prepare with time in God's word. There's no better use of our time.
Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's been written down so that all your people through the ages might share it. Thank you for those who have preserved it, for those who've translated it into our heart tongues, and for those who've studied it and prepared so many useful tools to help us understand your word better. Let our hearts be good soil for your word, that it might grow and be fruitful in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.